Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to On The Mic. My name is Mike Goldman, the podcast about people who are on the mic for a living. Thanks, Bendigo. Just got back, hosted the Business Excellence Awards. Excellent Smithers. Or like Bond villain, excellent Mr. Bond. Or like Kylie Mole, it's so excellent. Maybe I'm getting carried away on the excellent thing. But thank you to Excellent Bendigo for having me. And Jason Tay, Leah Satori from B Bendigo, the Alumbra Theatre in the old Bendigo Jail. It was awesome. Then I went to the Rocks on Roslyn. Nice little bar. Got a little bit tanked. And Mr. Beebs till like 3 a.m. with the staff outside, even though they were closed. I'm sure that was illegal, but we hung out there and drank. Yahoo! Thank you to the Shula Studio for having me as well. That's a nice hotel. Sorry about the mess I made. Big congratulations to the winner from Frankie and Co. The owner, Paige Davies, the Bendigo Business Excellence Awards Business of the Year. If you'd like to see an interview with Paige, go to my Facebook page, Facebook forward slash Mike Goldman Live. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash on the mic, patreon.com forward slash on the mic, M-I-K-E. Behind the scenes footage, you even get your name mentioned here in the podcast as well. Yes, we can be bought. Might even put you on the show. Little donation helps people like Rachel, who edit the show, get paid so that she can actually eat. Thank you, Rachel. You're amazing. So patreon.com forward slash on the mic. Thanks to Apple Podcasts and Libsyn for hosting this on the mic with world-renowned comedian Ben Darso. He's been a stand-up comedian for 15 years. Amazing talent, this guy. Played a show with him a couple of weeks ago at Luna Park at the Sydney Comedy Club, which is owned by Darren Sanders. We have a bit of a chat about him, what his plans are for the future. If you're a fan of comedy or maybe even you want to be a comedian, then this is a good one to listen to, how he got started, etc. He's 35. He holds a finance degree. He's from Radelaide. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks to Apple Podcasts and Libsyn for hosting this on the mic. Here is world-renowned comedian Ben Darso. Check. One, two, three. On the mic. Test, test, test. With Mike Goldman. Hello. Hey, mate. How are you? Good, good, good. Welcome to Sydney Town. How's it treating you? Uh, loving it here. Yeah, having a having a great run of gigs. Yeah, you are. You've been traveling all over the world. You've been doing stand-up comedy for what ten years or something now. Yeah, it uh, you'd get lots in the uh, in the distance, but it'll be. Uh, I think it's getting close to fifteen now. Fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> Let me edit that. We can start again. It's only at the start. And now here's Ben Darso, who's been doing stand-up comedy for fifteen years. Ben, great to see you. How are you enjoying it? Oh. Really good. Thank you for acknowledging those first five years. I appreciate it. You played Luna Park the other night? Yeah. I heard the MC was pretty shit, but it was a good night otherwise. Uh, don't, don't be too hard on yourself there, Mike. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, Sydney Comedy Club there, a lot of fun. Had Happy Endings Comedy Club in the King's Cross last night and a couple of weeks coming up at the uh, Comedy Store in Fox Studios. Happy Endings Comedy Club. So did you have to do a bit of extra work when you got off the stage or what? Uh, I think there are a few people in there uh, maybe uh, under the impression it's a different kind of club. <laughs> Speaking of strange names, strange clubs, you've done some gigs in Malaysia recently. What was that like? Uh, Malaysia's amazing and it's actually the Crack House Comedy Club is the main stand-up comedy club there. So uh, try explaining that to customs uh, in a country that has the death penalty for drugs. 
So, so you've gone from uh, the crack house to the happy endings. <laughs> What's next? The punch in your face comedy club. <laughs> I uh, yeah, just playing all the big clubs. That's uh, that's what I'm doing. All the big festivals that you've been playing. You've you've done the uh, Melbourne Comedy Festival, the Perth Festival, and Fringe festivals. So, what's been the best one so far? Uh, I think I've got a little uh, following, sort of growing over there in Perth. So, Perth's a really uh, nice month. Um, it's the first place I've ever been where you walk to your venue and there's people snaking around you know the corner like lining up for your show which is a a super cool feeling yeah you sold like 1500 tickets what was that like was that your biggest sellout ever yeah it was really cool combank were happy with me i'm i'm back in the game (laughs) (laughs) so you're paying off your your bills and your debts yeah just just clearing the slate so june 5 at the old manly boat shed the harold park hotel on the 6th the 7th, the Oatley Hotel, and the 8th to the 10th at the Comedy Store. If you want to see the dates, facebook.com forward slash Ben Darso. Where's, where's the other places you played all over the world? I mean, we know you did Malaysia and you've done all the um, all the comedy festivals in Australia. Have you done um, over in Canada and some of those other big festivals? Yeah, I, I was over in um, Vancouver each of the last couple of years um, on the west coast of uh, Canada. And it's funny you mentioned it. I actually had an email in my inbox on Friday from the from the manager of the club saying, hey, you're planning on coming back this summer. Um, just an amazing scene over there. And I think you have that point of difference as an Australian as well. So, yeah, Vancouver is one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Is Vancouver the biggest comedy town in the world, would you say? Uh, over in Canada, I think they say Toronto is a really strong scene throughout the year. Uh, Montreal, the comedy festival was invite only just for laughs. And that's a really exclusive festival. I'd love to do that in the next couple of years, hopefully. Um, Vancouver's, um, one of those scenes. It was very, very similar to Sydney. A lot of really good rooms, a, a high standard of comedy. And I felt very welcome there uh, really quickly. So it, it, that'd be the biggest in the world, like even bigger than like a New York or an LA comedy scene, do you think? Uh, I think New York and LA are probably always going to be right up there at the top. Um, New York, a lot of comics um, really working on being comics. LA, it looks like there's a lot of people getting up on stage to do comedy who more so want an acting job and they're sort of up there hoping to perhaps impress an agent. Um, I think think that's how um, those two scenes will always be. So, mate, how'd you get into this comedy game? Man, I just uh, fell into it. I was doing a finance degree um, back when I was 20 years old. I did raw comedy run by Triple J and the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Enjoyed doing it. And uh, by the time I'd finished my degree, I just felt like continuing with stand-up. So, where'd you come in, in the uh, comedy competition? Uh, I think the first year I did it, I made the state final. The uh, The third attempt I, I had at it, I, I won it in SA and got to do the national final with some really talented comics who've, who've gone on to have a professional career. Wow, cool. Um, Matt O'Kine, uh, Claire Hooper, uh, Nick Sun, Sam bowing so it was, a, it was a really good year to be involved in matter kinds the uh, the triple j breakfast announcer and i saw a poster for a gig that you guys did and, and they, they flipped it around yeah they, they did they had my bio with matt's face and they had matt's bio with my face so it was a, it was a cultural exchange is that someone just messing with you or do you think that was actually meant to be like that to be honest i think that was someone who made an honest mistake um and it was kind of i mean matt matt got a bit you know mainstream a bit of a mainstream profile going with his triple j it was before that so i think it was an honest mistake did he get offended uh i, I think either or both of us just got a laugh so uh, who talked you into doing this whole comedy thing was it your mate said that you were funny or you were just you just thought that's something that I really want to do. Did you already have a few gags up your sleeve? Did you get up at a Christmas party and make a speech and everyone laughed at it? Uh, honestly, I think the first stand-up comedy I did was my mate's 18th birthday party. We'd known each other since we were three or four years old, so I had an entire lifetime of material on him. Uh, got up and did the speech, and uh, it just felt like stand-up. And I was like, "This is an amazing buzz. <laughs> I'm going to keep doing this." 
And, and so you were still friends after it? Uh, we were actually, and uh, he drank so much that night that uh, he had a few days in the hospital afterwards. But when he recovered, uh, I don't think he remembered a word of it. Do you remember any of the gags, your first gags that you did about your mate on stage that day? You know, to be to be honest, and this is this sounds horrific now as a professional comic, but I reckon I kind of ripped off some stand-up of some comics at the time and kind of <laughs> adjusted it to, uh, to to my mate's situation and kind of used that as the structure for what I was doing. Does that happen a lot in your industry? Do people plagiarize ideas? I think people cross over a lot on what they talk about, but uh, I mean, it's just so frowned upon. It's not like sort of music where you can be a cover band and kind of pay tribute to another yeah. uh, another act. Like uh, it, it self-regulates pretty well, I think, this industry. Hey, what do you mean by self-regulates? Like if you do something on stage, like the boss of the comedy club is like, you can't do that, that's someone else's jokes. It might be a little bit like that, or it might be another comic sort of mentioning, hey, do you know so-and-so does that? Or just, you know, just a general kind of attitude towards you if it starts happening a fair bit. Do you remember a few years ago, there was a guy on X Factor that did an entire routine that was someone else's? Yeah, I, I do remember. I, I mean, I, I, I feel for that dude that he kind of decided to do that because that was outrageous on national or international TV, yeah. doing something where that was always going to be picked up within a few minutes. Yeah, I think the whole comedy industry just looked at that and went, what are you doing? So who's your favourite comedian? Who was someone that you looked up to and you thought, I want to be like that guy? Jerry Seinfeld was the first person I ever saw. Um, I listened to a, a, a CD of his when I was about 18 years old. Um, Eddie Murphy was the next guy I saw. I saw his uh, Delirious album, I think. Eddie! Yeah, Eddie. Yeah. Goonigugu! What the <laughs> fuck does Goonigugu mean? <laughs> I mean, it was a classic at the time. It's funny, Eddie actually now says, he goes, I look back at who I was, you know, when I was 20 years old and doing that and he's like I wouldn't say any of the same things but I think back in the time that was an iconic comedy album now Dave Chappelle Louis CK I think Ricky Gervais is pretty close to as funny as we've got on this planet at the moment Eddie Murphy's unreal I remember growing up as a kid seeing him in his his leather outfit up there on stage I got an ice cream you could drop that shit in, in dog shit and just scrape it off and still eat it it's just sprinkles G.I. Joe swimming through the water and then the big brown shark came I love that stuff is that is that like your goal to do a, a comedy recording that would be that iconic that's remembered for years to come yeah I uh I, I, I guess I guess it would be. I mean, Eddie Eddie was just an amazing guy. If you look sort of at the writing of what he was doing, I mean, and anyone else, like if you or I tried to do that, I don't think we could pull it off. But like it was the guy's personality, um, you know, that allowed him to do that. I think that's what you want to do. You want to establish your own sort of brand of comedy that, that people are really uh, uniquely finding from you. If you've ever heard him in, in interviews or, or read interviews with him, he said when he first got to LA, he used to put on this character voice and pretend to be his own agent and like book his gigs and <laughs> his own PR agent. It's, it's something I think that's really important in the comedy industry where you've got to get out there and promote yourself so that people go to your gigs. A lot of people leave it to the, the venues and stuff like that. Um, so I think, you know, doing podcasts and getting out there and, and pushing your name around town. Do you have like an agent or something like that does that for you? Uh, technically, I'm, I'm not managed at the moment. I have a lot of people I look to for advice though, definitely. And I think, you know, if you can take a little bit here and there from the people around you whose opinions you value, um, that's the way I'm just moving forward step by step at the moment. Yeah. Steve Martin said in the uh, the masterclass that I downloaded just recently, because I wanted to see what he was on about him, and he's a very experienced stand-up comedy guy. He said, LA is the best place to be in the world because you just need to be in pointing vicinity so people can go, oh yeah, that guy's pretty good. 
you, you got to be around to be seen. So potentially you can you can get those kind of gigs. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think I think there's so much truth to that. And and the one thing I really realized when I went to LA is no one there cares what you've done outside of LA. They don't give a shit, do they? I lived there for two years. Hi, I hosted uh, Big Brother Friday Night Live. I have my own talk. We don't give a shit. There's 20 million people in Australia, 26 million or whatever. There's 350 million in America. Big deal. It's it's so true. I mean, you know what what you've done is is the pinnacle of the industry here in a country that's not small. And and you go there, and it really is about what you can build up in LA before you're given any kind of cred or seriousness over there. Yeah. So have you done gigs over there as well? I did. Yeah, I've done uh, gigs there the last couple of years. Um, yeah, managed to uh, get onto some pretty sweet little lineups. LA is a completely different industry here in Australia. You can make a, a genuinely good living just doing stand-up comedy in LA. Even the really good comics are working for like twenty dollars a night. Yeah. It's just to build up their profile. I met the Jewish guy who owns the Laugh Factory, and uh, yeah, he said, uh, "Yeah, you want to come down here and, and MC? You, you can you can come down and do it for free. I'll book you." And uh, we got an opening in six months' time. So that's how many how many people want to do it and want to MC and just be on stage. In LA, eventually they'll probably end up paying so they can get on stage and do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would say there's so much truth to that. You can make a big kind of moral stance about the fact that your art form requires uh, more money than you're being offered, but uh, if you don't want that gig, champ, there's about a thousand, literally thousands of people that will take that yeah it's tough over there but you know I, when i was there i'd see people doing stand-up and then i go wow these guys are incredible and they wouldn't be doing anything on tv or in movies and then like two or three years later you go oh yeah i remember seeing that guy at the laugh factory or the comedy store so is that you on stage is that ben darso or is this a character that you made up it's Definitely me. It's an aspect of me. I think they they sort of say with a lot of comics, it's a particular aspect of your character under the microscope. So it's something genuine, but it might just be like a dominant trait within your personality that kind of comes out and defines who you are on stage. So how, how do you choose what parts of your personality that you're going to bring out on stage? Is it just general conversations with people and hearing when they, they laugh at something you might say and go, right, I'm going to write that down. That's going to be part of my act. Or is it just something that eventually came out after doing lots of shows? Yeah, I, I don't think it is something that you choose. I mean, perhaps for some people, maybe early on, they're trying to find who they are. They might consciously think about it. Um, I, I think it's one of those things that you just allow to develop. And, and over time, your style intrinsically changes. Um, a, a mate of mine ran into Billy Connolly, a, a comedian mate of mine, and he asked Billy for a bit of advice. And Billy said, just let your style find you. Right. So what do you think he meant by that? Just just get up there and, and, and keep telling the jokes until your personality comes out on stage? Or does he mean when you're actually writing it down? I mean, you guys write all this stuff out until it's in, entrenched and ingrained in your head. Yeah, I imagine he was probably talking uh, uh, in, in both senses, probably more so just who you are in terms of how you're presenting on stage, I would say. Yeah. What do you think of Billy? He's amazing, isn't he? Billy's, Billy's an enigma. I think yeah. he's going to be, you know, one of those guys that everyone looks back on or appreciates as an, as an all-time great. I don't think there's any question about that. So you've been doing a few cruises. What's it like doing the comedy cruises? You just get up and do the same act every night or you go, shit, I've already heard my routine from last night. I've got to make up a whole new one tonight. I, I do a lot of impro, so like it, it's sort of rarely kind of a, a copy-paste script. I, to be perfectly honest with you, um, I, I love the cruises. There's a lot of uh, comics out there who don't enjoy it, and um, I, I respect that. But um, from my perspective, it's a 300-seat theatre. It's a, it's a bunch of people up late at 10.30 at night who've chosen to be there. They're on holidays in a good mood. Yeah. And uh, I'm having some of the most fun gigs of my life in there. Yeah, it's a wedding crowd, isn't it? Are they all drunk? 
Uh, not as horrifically as you might think. I, before I started doing them, I thought, is this just going to be, you know, heckles coming at you from 360 degrees? Um, but uh, they're well lubricated. But uh, I think in that theatre environment, there's something that, that people uh, intrinsically respect about looking down there at a, at a big stage. How do you handle the hecklers? Especially if you're going to be having breakfast with them the next morning. <laughs> Yeah, tr- true. I think I think in terms of environments where if you had a bad gig, like how bad it would be, I think that's right up there because you're literally just walking past the very people that you <laughs> might not have impressed the previous night. Oh no! So speaking of, uh, I mean, though that was a good gig, but um, bad gigs. I think uh, I don't know if it was that bad, but the, the smallest gig you did was for three people at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Um, what's the story with that one? Man. Bad promotion on their part, obviously. <laughs> that, that's true. That was uh, it was only about uh, six or seven weeks ago. Um, three people, three ladies between the age of fifty and ninety from the same family, and uh, the fella I had flyering for me literally uh, found them uh, about five minutes before my show started, and it was on a night when uh, I had a Herald Sun reviewer also uh, in attendance, and uh, oh, no. yeah, so it was a reviewer, three ladies, and myself. And uh, go in there and commit hard. What, what did you do? Did you just act as if, you know, it's 1,500 people? Or did you speak to them all individually? Yeah, how did you work it? Uh, I think it was uh, unavoidable to acknowledge the situation. So uh, well and truly just uh, played with uh, what I had. And they were magical. I had a reviewer who came in and didn't write me off just because of the situation. And uh, honestly, the five of us were laughing hard before I'd even said a word just at the absurdity of the situation. <laughs> but good on you for getting up there because I know a lot of comedians who'd go, fuck this, and they wouldn't even get up on stage. And you got a five-star review. Yeah, um... I, 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 I got I got I got four stars, but I, I appreciate that. It was a really it was a really positive review, and I think it was just one of those moments where it's like let's let's make something of this. You could easily call that gig off. There'd be no review of your show. The, the festival's so competitive, you wouldn't get that reviewer back to your show and have that opportunity of some publicity. Mm. And um, it, it it really caught on. I think I got a lot of value out of committing to it. The uh, the paper did an article on the review. Mm. Triple M read the article on the review. Um, Billy Brownless and James Brayshaw had me in there and uh, were, were just great guys and it really kind of boosted up my uh, numbers for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah uh, You did get a five-star review. That was from Joy Lean, one of the, the country ladies that came to the show. I, I spoke to them. I didn't actually read the article. Um, so... The best gig, I guess, is something like you, you would have played in, um, you know, on in Perth. Would it would have been one of the best gigs you played, or what's what's the most memorable one for you? It's 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 really hard to define. I think I think gigs are, are memorable for different reasons. I think Perth's the first place I've really cracked through where I've seen those numbers, and there's something very special about walking into a room where. 150 people have specifically come to see you you know as a po- I've done lots of club gigs where there's two three four hundred people but they're there for a night of comedy I think there's there's something really special where you're like these people out of a competitive festival came and chose me yeah you are man you- ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hold up. 
killing it. You, you're a brilliant comedian. Your your gags are, are like a shotgun. You just fire them out nonstop. Do you think it's um it's it does it feel better for you on stage when you have a bigger crowd rather than like a you know two or three hundred people because. Like when I was, you know, on stage doing stuff like Big Brother, we'd have 2,000 people. I'd have to come out there and do crowd warm-up. And it'd be a bit daunting at first, but once you get into it, laughter's infectious and it just it just carries through the whole room. Once you get over that initial sort of speed hump, does it make it a lot easier for you to, to speak to a crowd that big, do you think? I, I would I would definitely agree with that. And, uh, you know, people often ask that, you know, is it scary in front of a big crowd? I think it's infinitely scarier when you have those situations yeah. where there's three or four people and um, because that same degree of energy isn't there so much of uh, of comedy it's not just what you're saying but it's that dynamic that as you said with you uh hosting the big brother event in front of 2,000 people it just starts bouncing around and that it's so much easier to to create that when you've got you know a couple of hundred people in that room have you ever had anything happen when you're on stage that you just go oh no this is this is the worst moment of my life like some, something something you've said or something you've done hasn't gone according to plan like you've made a mistake anything like that that first comes to mind that's really interesting that you asked that. Last night at uh, Happy Endings uh, Comedy Club, um, I asked, <clears throat> excuse me, I asked a, a lady, she was just there with a couple of her children, they were all visiting from Tasmania and I just, um, I couldn't quite see past the light and uh, I just said, you know, is, is, is your, is your uh, husband here as well? Is, you know, is it the full family? And, and she said, oh, um, my husband and I were married for 50 years and he actually passed away um, at the end of last year and uh, the air just sucked out of the room like like a vacuum and don't you hate that yeah you know it's just yeah you know it's just an innocent question the response is a really unfortunate response and i think just collectively everyone in there just kind of took a moment and then i just acknowledged it instinctively and Mm. just said you know we all feel for you and thanks so much for being out here tonight Mm. room kind of burst into a little applause for her um, and we moved on. It was just one of those bizarre moments where you just, I think, have to go with your gut reaction to how to play it. Yeah, that's that's full on. And lucky before that, you didn't say, oh, is your husband, sorry, brother here? Or where, where, where are you from? Inceston? I mean, sorry, Launceston? And then, oh, no, my husband died. So that could have been a lot more, a lot more worse for you. I remember I was on stage once and uh, it was one of those Big Brother events, actually. And uh, I usually get everyone out of their chairs at the start of the show. I go, come on, let's just go crazy. We're going to kick someone out of the house tonight. Let, you know, who wants to win some prizes? And giving away plasma screen TVs and T-shirts and all sorts of other crazy stuff. And um, one guy wasn't getting up and he was just sitting there with his arms folded. And I'm like, what's wrong with you, buddy? Come on, get off your ass and clap. And he still wasn't. And I just picked on him, went to town on this guy for like the next 20 minutes. And the executive producer of the show came over to me and um, he's quite a pompous man. His name's Howard Parker, very well spoken. He says, Goldman, do you realize who you're insulting in the front row of the theater? And I go, no, but he's a dickhead because he won't even stand up and clap. And he goes, he's the chairman and director of Southern Star Endemol. He pays your bills. And I go, okay, that's that's bad. Like I, I should have, I should have just left him alone. But uh, but really, I mean, he should get up and clap with everyone else. And he said he can't get up and clap. He's in a wheelchair. Oh man, yeah, I saw that coming as oh. soon as you started talking. Yeah, oh. that's just one of those moments where you're like, oh man, I've done it. But they moved him out of the wheelchair and he just into a normal chair. And I'm like, oh, and I went up and said sorry. And he, yeah, we actually became really good good friends after that. And I hung out with him a few times, but. Just when you when you do those horrible things on stage, actually, you know, I'm, 
I've made a career out of it. The amount of times <laughs> I've fucked up, not not just not just on stage on national television. Like I was hosting the uh, the fireworks for Channel Ten underneath the Harbour Bridge at Doors Point, and it was a bad enough broadcast anyway. It got slagged off all over the newspapers the next day because um, Matthew Newton was hosting part of it and he was drunk with John Foreman on the television a couple of days earlier and I got Fitzy, Brian Fitzgerald, to dress as Paris Hilton and in a pink dress and a blonde wig and you know pretend that he was making out with someone. And, and then um, and I didn't know that they were, they were going to cross to me to, to throw to the package for all the shows coming up on Channel 10 in 2007. Mm-hmm. And I'm just standing there with my earpiece in and they say, oh, Mike, we're having problems with the opera house. We're going to have to cross to you in, in five, four. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'll oh, just, just throw to the, uh, the packages for 2007. I went, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Hey, we're having fun over here at Tours Point. It's a rocking show underneath the Harbour Bridge. The fireworks are coming up. But before the fireworks happen, uh, 2006 has been a great year on 10 and 2007 is even going to be even um, better on 7. Take a look at what's coming up. I mean, on 10. Oh, man. <laughs> I said the wrong network. Oh, dude, and you were so fluent to that point. Like, I'm impressed with uh, how easily everything else came out. Oh, I completely stuffed it. And I got messages from, like, the network boss, from the program manager, from the producers... Like even Bree and Fitzy, who I was there with, they're like, what are you doing? Why'd you say that? The best message I got was from my mum. Mum wrote a message to me saying, Mike, happy new year. Great show. Love Kerry Stokes. It's <laughs> glad that your mum could see the funny side of it. Oh, that was, that was shocking. But, uh, you know, we, we come back from those. We bounce back. Some say I probably shouldn't have. Thank God I've, I've still barely keeping my career alive with uh, MC, <laughs> MC gigs at the, uh, the Luna Park Comedy Club run by Darren Sanders. How good is Darren Sanders? Darren's a lovable, big, grumpy bear. He is, isn't he? With, with the emphasis on grumpy. He's done like three series of his own stand-up comedy show. Or it's, it's more like a Tonight Show. It's bullshit that Australia doesn't have a Tonight Show. We need a Tonight Show here. It's embarrassing when we have all these big celebrities come out and, and all we can offer them is a crappy breakfast television show or another chat show that's, that's put on in between infomercials. We need like a rove or someone like you should do a tonight show and and that's why he's got up and done his own with his own money i think he's doing another one late this year and he said he's going to do it just from his house that's uh that that's pretty cool i have seen a couple of uh, episodes of what darren filmed I, I think it's really good darren has a naturally like really personable style he's well connected in the industry it's it's funny stuff there's another guy um john conway who has a, a tonight show um sort of starting to spring up on television he's been doing that oh, yeah. uh live for a couple of years he's a, oh where's that uh, I, I believe that they filmed it, if I'm not mistaken, in the Cafe Lounge in Surrey Hills, which is a beautiful little uh, intimate comedy venue. I'm actually doing that um, tomorrow night on Monday night. Oh, cool. Um, uh, what channel is that on? Uh, I think John's show is on ABC, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, he's he's been one of those comics that's uh, been steadily building uh, a huge skill set in a very unique way. And um, uh, hopefully for him, he, he really breaks through into that um, area of the market that you're talking about. Well, that's how you do it. I mean, Rove started on uh, one of the community channels in Melbourne. He did that for a few years. And then all of a sudden, Nine gave him a run for about a minute. And like Channel Nine, if it doesn't rate the first week, they just pull it off the air. And then Channel 10 gave him a good long run. And it, it went really, really well. So hopefully uh, hopefully your show keeps going. We can have some, some decent talent doing a Tonight Show like that. So um, your humour... Would you describe it as um, like a self-deprecating, observational humour? Yeah, I would. Um, I, I'd describe it 
first and foremost as observational stand-up. That's all my writing. Mm. It's an observational style of comedy. And then uh, improvised each night with the crowd that's in there. Because mm. I, I saw something you did from way back in 2011 where you're talking about your hair. You know, and you know, getting asked for ID when you get into nightclubs and you just show them your hair and say, <laughs> I either need to be in, in hospital with hair like this or you need your eyes checked. You said something along those lines. Um, so how, how's your hair going? You're wearing hats on stage now. Is that a, a new decision? Yeah, the horse is well and truly bolted. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is like a, an iPhone 2.0. This is the upgraded look. Yeah, cause, I mean, mine's getting that way. Like, look at the back there, you know, it's sort of starting to grow grow a bit like solar seat. What is it? What do they call this? A solar panel for a sex machine or I'm growing too tall for my haircut. Actually, um, I had some hair cut out of the back and put in the front. I'm serious. You want to see the scar? Sure. Yep, look, see the back there? Have a look at that there. There it is. Yep, yep. And yep. see like in the front there? Yep. I'm I'm hearing you. I think I I think um, hair's one of those interesting things for for men. Like when I was sort of in my like mid twenties, and you're starting to notice, you know, the hairline go back. It's one of the freakiest things. And then I think the ironic thing is, here I are, you know, at 35, like that the hair's gone. Like I just shave it to you know a, a number one level now, and I couldn't care less. Mm. It's weird. I look back at photos of myself. Uh, you know, in my mid-20s when I knew that I cared about it and I'm looking at it and I'm like, I had a truckload of hair still there. Mm. It all goes and you actually don't give a shit. Mm. Do you um, tell you where well, you just shave it or do you, what do you wax it? Do you have electric? Look at that there. You've got, you've got a good shaped round head. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm lucky that my head's not a, a horrific uh, shape and, uh, and I, can, I can get away with it. No, no, I shaved my head a few years ago and mine's actually shaped like a peanut under there. <laughs> and and, and I, have, I have this massive bump at the back of my head and and when i'd shave my head people would look at the back of my head and they go what's that what's going on with the back of your head what do you what are you done there what's what's going on have a, have a feel have a feel of this bump oh there's a yeah there's a good little bump there definitely yep i'm feeling it do you think i was dropped on my head as a child or something like that it could possibly have been i actually had a, a really uh i had a really heavy glass door get uh get uh, shut on my forehead when I was about three or four years old uh, back in Brunei where I was um, where I was born and uh, got whisked off to the hospital and I've got a scar that I think will be with me for forever I got one here like look, right on my uh, right eyebrow where I was I was being chased by my brother when I was about seven and I pushed the door the wrong way in a house that I'd lived and I was pretty much born in, so I should have known which way the door went. Door bounced back, and the lock on the door smashed me right there in the eye. But uh, why? how do we get talking about scars? Oh, that's right, hair and all that kind of stuff. Think, think... Uh, we, we sort of started on self-deprecating humour, but it, it's, it's just become not funny at all. We're just talking about each other's battle scars. It's quite embarrassing. This is how easily guys can transition into battle scar stories. Um, one more though, while we're uh, while we're hot, um, my mum actually ran through a glass door when she was a kid. She has a scar that goes from her wrist uh, all the way up to her bicep, and uh, apparently uh, came very close to uh, losing her arm. Uh, yeah, as a, as a kid. Oh, that's horrible. Speaking of losing arms, um, I used to do this 
competition called Scar Search on the radio. People would ring up and say what kind of scars they had and all that kind of thing. Oh, you know, I've got a scar here, scar there, and they'd send in photos. And then I started doing it on television because it went so well and people ringing up and explaining stories. You get people out of the crowd and they'd stand up on stage and they'd go, oh, look, this is where I've, I cut my finger open. I'm actually showing Ben a scar right now. I cut my finger open when I was about 12 trying to open one of those SPC cans. Oh, wow. and, and I ripped my finger right open and Mrs. Moss, my teacher, um, said, do you mind? Stand back. I'm, I'm trying to have a conversation here. And I go, no, but I'm, I cut my finger and I pointed at her and squirted blood all over her shirt. And went, oh, wow. and, uh, and anyway, that's my scar story. But um, so all these people are standing there on stage. And there's one lady there that's, I'm going through them all. Oh, this is a scar I got from an operation. This is my open heart surgery. Oh, this is an operation on my back. And there's one girl standing there with, uh, with one arm. And I'm, well, that's not a scar. Is, is that, do, I, do I disqualify her? Or, or, or does or, she automatically win? Like, yeah. which way does that go? But, but it, it, uh, it went one step further. Like, we've interviewed everyone, and, the, and luckily she was the last one because you want to interview all the good ones and have the best one to last. And she said her arm was bitten off by a shark. And, and everyone's like, wow, I gave her a round of applause. And she goes, no, just kidding, it was cancer. And, I went, and then as she said that, her right leg fell off. She had like a a plastic leg as well and, and I'm like uh, and everyone's like oh, everyone's shocked and she goes no and I did that on purpose and so, so she won man what a great sense of humour yeah and so uh, that was the last time I did that competition <laughs> There's, a, there's actually a young comic uh, in um, Perth, uh, Alicia Marsh, who uh, I don't think she'd mind me talking about this, but uh, she's quite open about it. But she has um, a finger in the place of her thumb on both of her hands. And she said that that came from um, a shark attacking her on a boogie board as a kid. She has a what? A, f- a finger on both of... What is it? If you can picture where your thumbs are, yeah. she has a finger placed there to replicate how a thumb would be on her hand yeah. because both of her thumbs were bitten off yeah. when she was holding the top of her boogie board as a kid by a shark. No. That's crazy. So she's thumbless. Yeah, yeah. She's quite she's quite open about it. That's the story she gave me. And to the best of my understanding, she was being sincere about that. Wow, that's freaky. One of the freakiest things I've ever heard. Adam Hills, he's uh, someone who is legless and he you know, takes the piss out of it a lot, takes the piss out of himself. I was hosting the Hollywood Ashes in the States. It's like a celebrity cricket match and I contacted him on Facebook and asked him to, to come out and play. And he's actually a really good cricketer and he hit a six and his leg fell off and he hopped all the way from one end of the pitch to the other. Man, you got to get it done somehow. He's a legend. He's doing really well. Yeah. So where's it going for Ben Darso? What are you doing now? You, you're heading off into bigger theatres or is it more acting for you? What's the story? It's funny. I think I think a lot of comics use uh, stand-up as a springboard into television or radio or acting or presenting. Um, for me, at the moment, it's just about stand-up. I, I, I love the art form of stand-up. Um, I want to get as good as I can get. I want to. I want to be world class at this, and um, I, uh, yeah, I, I just want to sort of transition from the clubs to the festivals, which I, which I sort of already have, and um, and I, I'd love to start sort of touring in the theatres in the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, you, will you ever explore like the the acting side of things, or you want to get your own TV show, your Tonight Show? What's the plan? <laughs> 
Um, it's funny, like at, at the moment, I feel horrific at acting. If I get given a script and some instructions yeah. on where to turn, honestly, yeah. like I'm, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm like a primary school kid that, uh, yeah. What about skits like Kinney does, you know, or, uh, you know, like a, a fast forward, full frontal kind of comedy skits and stuff like that. Are you ever going to do those kind of things or maybe get your, your up routines and, and act them out into a video? You know that the 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 latter I, I think I, I could do I reckon um, because my stuff is observational a lot of it's uh, situational as as well I think I think that could come through in a little uh, I guess you could call it a sketch show kind of thing um, in terms of like any broader acting roles I think I'd be one of those guys that could only ever play myself and, and then you just copy paste them into a, a bunch of different uh, scenarios I'd love to see you do that stuff actually because from watching your your stand up and working with you as well. I think you bang on. A lot of your stuff that you do would be perfect to just to film it in a real situation. Like you've got some of your comedy about the homeless guy and, you know, you have a conversation with him. Like you could so film that. Let's film it. Let's do it. I reckon we should film that in a couple of weeks and put it up on, on your YouTube page and see how it goes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. I was only actually thinking a couple of days ago, like I, I get when people are homeless, it's, um, it's a tough situation for them. And I have a lot of empathy for that and... Um, you know, if I've ever got change in my pocket, I, I, I will, I will give it, um, you know, I think, I think it's really important to sort of help people like that. Um, but at the same time, like the joke that perhaps you're referring to on stage, I, I find really interesting presenting this different perspective on it where, um, I've got a mortgage, I've got a business loan, I've got a university debt, I've got a credit card that's maxed out and I'm sort of looked to, you know, for a little bit of change sometimes, or, you know, the answer to someone else's problems, <laughs> And I think it's a funny like alternative perspective on it where it's like, man, I am stacked with my own issues that I'm dealing with and getting up every day to kind of face. And, and, and I was only sort of thinking about maybe taking like a photo of me with sort of, you know, that list of debts written on a, a piece of cardboard or something like that sort of sitting there in the city. I, I, I don't know if that'd be like offensive or if that would actually make quite a, an interesting and, and perhaps funny point. And you're trying to get to where he is. I'm trying to get to where he is, a clean slate, debt-free, neutral position. Maybe you want to borrow something off him. <laughs> I don't know, the sleeping bag. I mean, we could use this. <laughs> One of your biggest gags. So if you're thinking of seeing Ben, don't you don't need to go now because you've, you've heard it here on the show. No, but let's film that. I reckon we film that. Can I be the homeless guy? I'll grow my beard a bit more. Or maybe should I have a fake beard? Uh, I think rock whatever you feel like. Yeah, let the, let the beard grow. Let's make this authentic. Or do you think people will go, hang on a minute, that guy's not homeless. Isn't that guy that used to be on Big Brother? Oh, no, that makes sense. Yeah, he would be homeless. Yeah, I think ever since that Channel 10, <laughs> Channel 7 mishap, you know, this is, this is where it's ended up, guys. It's all over. That, that's where we're at. Uh, ben Darcy, thanks so much for being on the mic. And uh, those gigs, again, if you want to go and see them, uh, facebook.com forward slash Ben Darso and uh, the 5th of June, the Old Manly Boat Shed, 6th Harold Park Hotel, 7th the Oatley Hotel, 8th to the 10th at the Comedy Store, facebook.com forward slash Ben Darso. You legend, thanks for being on the mic. It's been awesome, Mike. Appreciate you having me, man. You've been listening to On The Mic with Mike Goldman. Subscribe, download and review at iTunes, Audio Boom, Stitcher or your favourite podcasting app. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.